Hello and welcome to Ocean Matters from the Bertarelli Foundation. I'm Helen Chersky. It's often said that small is beautiful, and that's true in the ocean too. But in the huge blue expanses of our planet, the small aren't just beautiful, they're essential. The small I'm talking about are the plankton, the tiny and varied specks of drifting life that go wherever the ocean takes them. This month, we'll be putting plankton under the microscope to find out what they are, why they matter, and what their future looks like. As always, I've got three fabulous guests to help me explore all this. Dr Jill Schwartz from the University of Plymouth will introduce us to the magical world of plankton. Joanna Harris from the Manta Trust will help us explore why they're important for manta rays. And David Johns, the head of the Continuous Plankton Recorder, is on hand to tell us how the climate crisis is impacting plankton. The diversity of things in that little bit of water that you're looking at is huge, phenomenal. They swim along with their huge great big mouths open and they filter zooplankton from the water so they won't feed if there's not enough zooplankton in the water. We've now towed uh, just over 7 million miles or 17 times to the moon and back. (laughs) When you swim in the ocean, looking out for life is part of the fun. Darting fish crabs crawling around on the bottom, and perhaps, if you're lucky, a seal. But you're touching ocean life with every swimming stroke, even though you can't see it, because the surface waters are home to billions of tiny organisms. You could be swimming right through the ocean equivalent of a rainforest, but you still probably wouldn't be able to see it directly. These are the plankton. And they've got two options for feeding themselves, which splits them, broadly speaking, into two main categories. First of all, there are the sun harvesters, the ones who use energy from sunlight to sculpt raw materials like carbon dioxide into the building blocks of life in order to build their own bodies. These are the phytoplankton, the equivalent of plants on land. And then there are the ones who feast on the materials that others have made, often on the phytoplankton themselves. These can range from single cells right up to small animals, and these are the zooplankton. Even though these drifters are often too small to see, there are so many of them that all the plankton together make up 90% of the mass of all marine life. And inspecting them under a microscope is like viewing a gallery of the bazaar. There are little globs, things shaped like a trumpet, spiky organisms, critters with whips that propel them forward, and far, far more. This is life in all its glory. We met the zooplankton briefly in episode 7 of this podcast as key food sources for animals like whale sharks. But they also collectively undertake one of the biggest migrations on Earth, a daily trip from the darkness where they hide during the day up towards the surface to hunt at night and then back down again at dawn. It's a giant wave of life that ripples across the ocean as the planet spins, and it happens every single night. As the phytoplankton chug along with their sun harvest, gobbling up carbon to build their bodies, they're also playing a huge role in the cycling of carbon around the Earth's system. And so they have a huge role in keeping our climate under control. They may be too small to see individually, but there are so many of them that you can often detect them from space with satellites. This ability to see phytoplankton from space is what fascinates Dr. Jill Schwartz from the University of Plymouth. 
but she started off by telling me about the world that comes to life when you look at some seawater under a microscope. So for me personally, what's great is that you can look at a patch of ocean and think it's, you know, there's just not much happening there, it's just a bunch of water. But actually, when you look under a microscope, the diversity of things in that little bit of water that you're looking at is, is huge, phenomenal. And there are so many different life forms and different shapes and colours and sizes and, and modes of existing in that apparently ubiquitous looking patch of water that is just endlessly fascinating. So you can spend hours looking at all of these different life forms under a microscope. So let's get to what they are and dig down into the different categories that they come in. So just set out how they're different from each other. Well, plankton is a largish catch-all term for things that drift in the ocean, so stuff that can't propel itself, but is alive. So it describes um, several different life forms, from viruses and bacteria, which are extremely small, through phytoplankton, and then there are zooplankton, and there are also um, small animals, things like jellyfish, that also can't really swim against currents. And there are the phytoplankton are the marine equivalent of a plant, and then there are the zooplankton that don't do that, and those are, those are animals, and so they have to have food to feed on, and that, that food is often phytoplankton. And we've said that these things are small, but how small is that? How small is small? Very good question. The phytoplankton start at a micron or so, so at a thousandth of a millimetre, and go up to maybe maybe as much as a millimetre, although there are not very many that have that size. So, so generally they're about 50 to 100 microns. And then there are zooplankton roughly the same at, at the starting point, so some can be very small, and then they go into the millimetres and larger. So often the zooplankton are visible to the naked eye. We're used to thinking about life on land, that there are plants and trees and animals eat the plants and, and we sort of taught our food chains like that. What's the connection between the plankton and the whole ocean ecosystem? If you took away the plankton, the rest of it would not exist. So the, the phytoplankton I would start with as the base of the food chain. So they fundamentally are the things that fix carbon and, and use solar energy to create food out of the raw ingredients of life. On average, they are, they're contributing around about 50% of the carbon uptake. So, so you can split it more or less 50-50 between the terrestrial plants and the marine phytoplankton. And they are fed upon by zooplankton. And then along come uh, the larger organisms, so the smaller fishes, so we would call them the nekton, things that swim and then eat zooplankton mostly. Um, so the fishes, the larger fishes, the, the birds that eat the fish, the, the large cetaceans, the, the charismatic megafauna that eat all of those smaller things. We see the ocean at the top, but obviously it goes down quite a long way. So where do we find the plankton? So the phytoplankton, they require sunlight. So they're in, in the sunlit upper layer of the ocean. And that can be just a few centimetres if you've got really murky, soupy water near the coast. But it can also be 100 metres, perhaps a little more, in the clear open ocean. The zooplankton tend to be deeper in the water until such time as they decide to eat, at which point they migrate up through the water column. And then they'll return back to the depth where it's darker and safer. One of my favourite things about the ocean, which I think many people don't think about very often, but I think everyone should think about this every time they look at the ocean, especially at sunset, is that the zooplankton, it's not just that one or two of them are moving upwards towards the food, it's that all of them do it at the same time. And so there's this wave going around the earth. Tell me a little bit more about that. 
Yes, so that, that's the migration, the daily migration, a diurnal migration. So the zooplankton that are big enough for organisms to see and prey upon, so maybe birds or other um, fishes might, might want to eat them. So as, sun, as long as they're, they're in the sunlight layer, they're visible and they're vulnerable. And so at dusk, they all have that, that sunlight cue to rise up through the water column where they're passing into the layer of more abundant phytoplankton so they can consume and eat and have their fill and then come dawn, they all go back down again. So if you're, if you're floating along in a, in a ship that has an echo sounder and you, you move over a patch of water, you, at the right time, you may well see a, a, it looks as though the bottom is rising up towards you suddenly when you think you're in 100 metres depth, but suddenly <gasps> it, it's all roaring up towards you and that can be a, a very strong scattering signal from the zooplankton coming up or going back down again. And when it comes to the things that we don't know about plankton in general, why is it so hard to find out about and what do we still need to find out about? So the, the latest tools, I would say, that have really been beginning to change the game have been the, the genetic tools. And that's maybe been since the early 2000s that people have slowly started to apply that to the marine domain. And, and that's become really interesting that that's so, so much in the public eye now because of the, the pandemic. Everyone is aware of PCR tests and those are the techniques that people are using in the marine domain to try and map better what's, what's there. So with, with the genetic techniques, we start to get a, a fingerprint of all of those different elements of the plankton, not just one at a time. So all of the chemical interactions and all of the biological interactions and, and then how the physics is shaping those the seascape and trying to understand how that all works. And so that's one of the biggest areas of research right now, I think, is trying to integrate all of these new things. Jill Schwartz from the University of Plymouth. It can be hard for us humans to find plankton, but animals like manta rays are experts at it because they need to eat a lot of them to survive. So scientists from the Bertarelli Foundation's marine science projects look for large animals like this to find the plankton. And Dr Innes Langer came across a few manta rays earlier in the year. So out on the small boat and we found a couple of mantas in the entrance to the lagoon in Ekman. They're just cruising around, barrel rolling while they're feeding. You can see them from the surface. They're big, like two metre across at least. The visibility isn't great, so you're often surprised by manta coming up from the deep just below you. Joanna has successfully tagged quite a few mantas this morning. Ah, another one coming. Two huge ones just below the boat, just coming up. We're surrounded by mantas. Whoa. They're everywhere. They're everywhere on the surface. Swimming beneath the boat, behind the boat, front of the boat. Some of them are big, over 250 wingspan. Just spend an hour in the water with them. The plankton are the sole source of food for reef manta rays. But the plankton are tiny, while the mantas can reach up to four metres long. So each manta needs to eat a huge amount, and the only way to manage that is to seek out the region's richest in plankton, known as productivity hotspots. And that means that the mantas can be used as bioindicators. I spoke with researcher Joanna Harris from the Manta Trust, who explained why plankton are so important for the reef manta rays. 
It's really, really important to them because the amount of energy the manta rays have can have a knock-on effect to things like reproduction. If they're not getting enough food, they won't necessarily produce offspring. It's really energetically expensive. What we found is that reproductive cycles actually coincide with productivity cycles. So peaks in zooplankton abundance and high levels of plankton is when they will be giving birth. So it's very carefully timed to ensure that the food availability is right, obviously for themselves and for their pup as well when it's born. So, so we've got phytoplankton and zooplankton. So what are the manta rays eating mostly or do they just eat everything? <laughs> they more or less eat everything so uh, the way that they feed they sort of swim along with their huge great big mouths open and they filter zooplankton from the water with their specially modified gill plates so they won't feed if there's not enough zooplankton in the water the actual cost and energy of foraging looking for food and even the act of feeding so having their mouths open and swimming up and down in the current they need to ensure that the food they're actually gaining from it is going to offset and energetically offset the cost of, of doing these actions and what- what can we learn about manta rays from how they're feeding? Well, their feeding behaviour almost dictates um, everything they do. They will feed at every opportunity that's available. When conditions aren't suitable, they can make long migrations. They typically stay within a specific home range, but that can still be many thousands of kilometres, perhaps that they will swim in search of productivity hotspots. And is it the case that they, they have learned or is it a case that they're really good at sort of sniffing, sniffing out food? A lot of research has been done into associating the changes in feeding behaviours and where they're feeding and when they're feeding um, linked to oceanographic and environmental variables, sort of wind speeds and directions and current speeds. But what's becoming more and more apparent is that there's a, a big piece missing to the puzzle. So, you know, there's lots of plankton in the water, the current direction's right, the tide's right, but the mantas aren't there or vice versa. Perhaps the conditions aren't as good as you'd expect and the mantas are there. And so what it seems to be becoming more and more apparent is that they have a great cognitive ability and they potentially have built a cognitive map of their surroundings. They have internal body clocks and they're able to know where they're supposed to be and when they're supposed to be there. And that could be on a daily basis, perhaps on a tidal cycle or, you know, to do with the sunlight or it could be to do with seasons even at time, certain times of the year. But they do. it does look like they are actually remembering where they're supposed to be as well as following environmental cues. It's, it's especially clever because it's such a complicated environment, isn't it? And especially, you know, in the Maldives, for example, there are these enormous currents that switch direction twice a year. And so they've got to be on top of all of that. Absolutely. Um, and so this is one of the sort of biggest migrations that we know of at the moment where they literally are in one place for half the year and one place for the for the other part of the year. In other locations, there will be sort of seasonal movements. So, for example, in the Chagos Archipelago, at Egmont Atoll, which is my uh, main focus, they are there all year round. So they don't leave that, that atoll at all. But they do seem to move around to different places on the atoll, depending on what time of year it is, predominantly from sort of the south, southwest to the north, northwest. Um, and they will switch sides at different times of the year. And again, that's going to be to do with oceanographic conditions and changes in the seasons. But these home ranges are are huge. So, you know, the in the Chagos Archipelago, we've recorded satellite tag record of 550 miles round trip around the atolls, going to different feeding spots. And that was done in sort of a 20 day time period. It's really quick. That's, that's quite a commute. Yeah. <laughs> 
it is. Um, and then um, also in uh, off the eastern coast of Australia, um, they've shown satellite tagged uh, mantis to go many thousands of kilometres or, or, or a couple of thousand kilometres during the time that they had the tag attached um, in search of food. So it is a huge area that they cover, but they tend to be isolated to a specific home range as big as that is. It is quite a large area. And if you're going to go out and spend a day tracking manta rays or to set up the tracking system, how does it work? What do you do and and what happens once the tracking devices are active? So I look at fine scale movements. So rather than these long range movements, which um, satellite tags are good for using, I use acoustic transmitter tags. So these are limited to transmitting a signal which needs to be picked up by a receiver. We knew from photo identification surveys where the feeding locations were. And then we've deployed uh, 42 tracking transmitters um, onto 42 different mantas. So these are a range of um, adults and juveniles and males and females that we've been tracking over the past sort of year and a half. For the first time anywhere in the world, this kind of fine scale tracking, we've also recording fine scale oceanographic um, changes at the same time. So you can see if the sort of volume of potentially zooplankton or organisms in the water is higher when mantas are there compared to when they're not there. And if you haven't got an acoustic, if, if your manta ray doesn't have a little number on it, are they are they easy to tell apart? I mean, can you tell one manta ray from another? Oh, you absolutely can. So just between their, their gill, um, gills, they've got a spot pattern. So they're white underneath and they have a black spot pattern. So this is actually unique to every individual. So it's almost as unique as, as a human fingerprint. So this means um, if you take a photo of that individual, if you photo it again, you'll be able to identify it every time. And this is a really important data collection technique that we use at the Manta Trust. It allows you to track over a long period of time and it also allows you to incorporate things like citizen science. So lots of people take pictures of mantas if they're diving or free diving or snorkeling um, and we can actually incorporate those into our data sets because it's such an easy data collection technique. So it's like facial recognition but for manta rays. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> we hear Obviously, especially at the moment, we're hearing a lot about climate change and we talk a lot in this podcast about the the implications for the ocean of climate change. So how how is that impacting the plankton and, and then consequently the mantis? Well, the plankton are very sensitive to changes, obviously, in their in their environment, just like any, any sort of animals or species are. What you see is a shift in species, um, for example, if there's rises or changes in sea surface temperatures. So the knock-on effect with climate change, if you've got a huge shift in where plankton are, when they're there, how much there is, are mantas going to be able to adapt? Are they going to start sort of turning up at the wrong locations? Are they going to be going somewhere and there's not that crucial threshold for them to trigger feeding? Or warming sea surface temperature could increase the mantis metabolism, which means they're going to start needing more food at a time when it could actually be reducing the amount of food that's available. If they start moving away from these areas in search of food, they're going to be moving into waters where they're targeted by fisheries. That's a massive concern that they would start moving away from these protected areas. Joanna Harris from the Manta Trust. And you can find out more about Joanna's work on the Bertarelli Foundation's website, marine.science. Nature doesn't always respond immediately to stresses, and on land especially, it can take a long time to adapt. But it's a different story with plankton. They can have multiple generations a year, and so respond very quickly to the health of our ocean. And that is useful to monitor ocean health, 
but it also means that they have an immediate influence on the species that rely on them. But how can we keep track of billions of tiny organisms which are dispersed throughout the surface ocean and have such huge variety coupled with this here-today-gone-tomorrow lifestyle? Solving this problem has been the aim of a project called the Continuous Plankton Recorder, a large-scale global survey that measures the ecological health of marine plankton, and therefore the health of our oceans. I spoke with David Johns, head of the Continuous Plankton Recorder, who described how they capture these microscopic organisms. So a continuous plankton recorder, so I, I might refer to it as a CPR, just to shorten it, is a device that's towed behind merchant vessels. Um, and it, it's roughly sort of torpedo shaped, about a metre long. It's thrown off the back of a merchant vessel whilst they're on their regular monthly routes, so there's no interruption there. And as it goes along, it collects water through the front. Um, and there's a propeller system on it, which operates a, like a little gearbox that advances a silk mesh. And the silk mesh acts like sort of fishing net for plankton. There's the mechanism where it advances the silk into the rear of the CPR, where there's some pre preservatives. And then you, we bring it back and then we sort of look at it and we look at the plankton that have, have been caught. So it's kind of like, a, you know, the old style VHS videotapes where there was a, a tape being rolled past. It's a bit like that, but for plankton. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So that which is where the, the sort of term continuous comes. And when it's returned, we cut it into samples and we can plot where they have, have been taken, you know, in, in any of the world's oceans. So we have latitude and longitude and local date and time coordinates. So we have like a snapshot. Each sample is a snapshot of what's happened in the plankton at that place. And how long, how many ships is it on and how long has it been running? So it's currently on uh, it's about 20 odd vessels that are towing it at the moment, but it's been towing since uh, 1931. So it's our 90th anniversary, actually in September this year, September the 15th. And we've now towed uh, just over 7 million miles, which if you think about it, is a, is a crazy figure. So about 13 million kilometres, which works out to be 326 times around the world or 17 times to the moon and back. <laughs> So it's actually, we've actually just got a Guinness World Record. That sounds really exciting from a scientific point of view because you can directly compare, presumably, samples from the past and samples from now. Because we have this problem, you know, we can measure the ocean now, but we don't necessarily know what it was like 50 years ago, certainly not 90 years ago, really. Is it valuable to compare the samples from the past and the samples of the present? Sure, sure. And it's that's, that's where the real value in this lies. You know, you're entirely right. So, you know, whilst we've been doing it for 90 years, the sort of real consistent data has been from 1958. So from 1958 to, you know, 2020, We've used the same methodology the whole time. So if we see any changes, we can say, look, these are real changes. It's not because we've got a new microscope or we're using a new technique. They're real changes that have taken place in the environment. So you've got these nets that, you know, that you're filtering the ocean. And what are you looking for when the nets come back? Yeah, so the nets, they collect plankton, um, phytoplankton, which is the plant plankton, and zooplankton, which is the animal plankton. And they're caught on the nets. And then you know, we give the sample to our team and they look at them. And then they basically count and identify everything that they can on the sample. And they would try to get them as near to species level as possible. Um, you know, because that's, you know, that sort of gives you, your, you know, the idea of the community and the diversity and the changes that are happening. We've seen a lot of changes where colder water community of plankton is shifting northwards and there's a warmer water community has sort of has sort of come up. And it's not kind of like a like for like change. 
So it's not okay, one lot's gone away, one lot's moved in, everything's fine. What you tend to find are the warmer species that are coming in, they tend to be smaller, they have different life cycles, uh, you know, they peak in the year at different times. Um, and the colder stuff tends to be you know, slightly larger, that's shifted out of the way. And it's not just fish, it's um, cetaceans, you know, whales, for example, but also other marine mammals and, and seabirds, you know, pretty much all the sort of, you know, iconic sort of marine species all depend on plankton. The thing here with the plankton then is that this is all about patterns. It's about patterns shifting. And if, if the plankton pattern shifts and other patterns don't overlap with it, then you've got a problem. Yes, exactly. You get a mismatch and they quite often they use this term called a trophic mismatch. You have a, a species at the top that depends on the next species that depends on the next species and it's all interconnected in the web. And then as soon as it starts getting out of line, you have this mismatch, which, you know, species A is expecting species B to occur at, in January and it's, it's not there or it's moved somewhere else. So yeah, it's kind of, what, like we said, it's multiple stresses that you have to take into account if you want to manage the marine environment. The planet is one big engine. It's got all these interacting parts. The climate is changing because there's more energy in the system because we're putting it there. These tiny little things like plankton, how do they interact with this whole issue of, of climate and what the Earth's climate is doing? Plankton, they sort of the phytoplankton, they photosynthesize you know, like a plant does. So they draw down carbon dioxide and it sort of gets drawn down into the cell itself. Um, the cells quite often then eaten by other animals and you know they eventually are sort of excreted parts of them and they form marine snow which then sinks to the depths. So they act as a kind of a carbon capture. If there wasn't sufficient quantities of plankton in the surface waters that could have a, an impact on how much carbon is, is being drawn down into the oceans. But also they can reproduce rapidly and the sort of populations change very very quickly so they can respond very quickly to sort of any environmental changes. We've seen sort of, for example, over the last couple of decades has been, like I mentioned, this northward shift. But you can also see new plankton turning up into areas where they weren't before because, you know, now the water's warmed, they can shift northwards and they can become established. There was also evidence that due to reduced ice cover around the, um, the Arctic, particularly the Northwest Passage, that there's actually now a transfer of water from the Pacific into the Atlantic. So you can see Pacific plankton species now in the Atlantic, which you couldn't see, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And COP26 is coming up. Lots of people are talking about policy and about ocean policy. Are the policymakers interested in plankton at all? I mean, I think they should be, but is that what you see? Actually, yes, it has improved massively over the last few years. We've been working with a lot of colleagues sort of in the UK and in, in the EU. Uh, there's a number of initiatives um, there's the the marine strategy framework directive and then there's also the uk marine strategy you know where they're kind of aligned but obviously because of brexit we're slightly separate and as parts of those we've we've developed um what we call indicators um of, of ocean health using plankton um so those now go, go directly fed into sort of marine policy so we can sort of raise it at the kind of the highest level like the thing is, you know, if you if you want to sort of look after your marine environment, you know, you need to look at all aspects of it. It's not just fishing, it's not just climate, it's not just pollution. You also need to know what you know, these little guys are doing as well. It's so easy to overlook the plankton and to focus purely on large animals like the amazing dolphins, manta rays and fish that live on our timescales and size scales. But one of the fundamental reasons that we need to work harder to look after the ocean is that life in the ocean doesn't work like life on land. We have to get out of this mindset that the life we think is pretty or visible is the only life that matters. 
These small, mobile, short-lived specks of life are the heart of ocean ecosystems. And if we don't pay attention to them, we're missing a large part of the point of life on the blue planet. But I find the plankton easy to care about. They're incredibly varied and endlessly interesting, and they give you a whole new perspective on ocean life. Small is so very, very beautiful, and really appreciating that will add something to all our lives. Thank you to Dr. Jill Schwartz, Dr. Ines Longer, Joanna Harris and David Johns. Next time on Ocean Matters, we'll be diving with an iconic species, the turtles. Among other things, we'll be learning how these incredible animals navigate huge distances to tiny islands in the middle of the ocean. I'm Helen Chersky, and Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Follow or subscribe now for free wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. <laughs>